All right, I know we don't have pew Bibles, but if you have a Bible on your phone, perhaps open up to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to look today at verses 12 through 17, 12 through 17, and they begin with a little bit of poetry, and you kind of see that in the printed version of this text. Now, last week, Andrew Barber preached a sermon on the already, not yet, that Christ and his kingdom has come already, but the fullness um, that, that, that is to come is yet to come. It's not here yet. Uh, Christ has won the victory, but the fullness of that victory is in when he returns again. And so, but what we'll see in our passage today, though, it, it helps us to live in this already not yet tension and, and, and to live in this victory that Christ has won for us. We will see this morning that God's love has overcome all the evil in this world. And so that we who love God are now overcomers too. Sounds pretty exciting, right? I think we are all in need of this message. John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of the God of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possession, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the Apostle John, uh, the dearly loved disciple of Jesus, who faithfully uh, served uh, your church and is now with you in your presence. Uh, but your words, Father, through him are now before us, and we need to hear them. We need to know that there is a battle still raging and that in Christ we are more than conquerors. And so, Holy Spirit, lift up our hearts and minds this morning. Amen. Well, one of the most powerful movies I've seen in the, the last few years is titled simply 1917. I'm sure many of you have perhaps seen it. The director, Sam Mendes, and the cinematographer, Roger Deakins, immersed the audience uh, into the very trenches of World War I. It's, it's as if you're there, on the front lines, in the very battle between good and evil. You know, when you think about those who served in World War I and World War II and certainly other wars uh, as well, 
their lives on the battlefield are entirely consumed with the reality of the battle that's taking place. Makes sense, right? You cannot take a vacation when you're on the front lines of a battle. You won't become consumed with stock market gains or match.com notifications. There will be times when you fear for your life, when you will wonder, will we ever win this war? Will the enemy take us captive? In our passage today, John opens the eyes of his readers to a battle that is waging on earth, a cosmic battle between good and evil, light and darkness. He's already alluded to this. Remember in our passage we read a few weeks ago where John wrote, darkness is passing away and true light is already shining. The battle between darkness that the battle is between this darkness uh, that that opposes Christ and, and his kingdom and those whom Christ has brought into his glorious light of his kingdom. And so, my friends, we are currently living in an age where the battle rages on. The war is everywhere around us, and yes, even in us. It is in our homes, it's in our office buildings, our grocery stores, and our schools. Certainly in the last few weeks, it's been in our polling places and Twitter feeds. And if we're honest, it's also in the hidden places in our lives, the thoughts we have, and the things we do when no one's looking. There is no place we can go where we are not on the front lines of a cosmic battle of life and death with the forces of evil. Now, it's easy for us to forget though, right? Our culture is so secular and our beliefs have become so affected by naturalism that although we may believe that there's a spiritual world that parallels our physical world and a spiritual war that we're engaged with, we often don't really act like it. And we certainly don't think of it very often. And so we can be blind to the war going on right now at this very moment. And so consequently, we fail to properly train, equip, and prepare ourselves for this spiritual battle. John's words, in John's words, we fail to abide in God's word and will. And when this happens, we're susceptible to be letting astray in the pursuit of desires that are not from God. I think we know what we're talking about here. Now, with all this in mind, though, John writes to these Christians in Asia Minor to both encourage them and exhort them. That's what we'll divide our time into this morning. We will look at the encouragement, and then from that encouragement, the exhortation. And the encouragement is this. Listen, God has brought us into his holy, royal family. We are his beloved children. That's the encouragement we need to hear over and over and over. And here is the exhortation. Therefore, we are to live in loving devotion to him, our heavenly father. Sounds quite simple, right? Well, let's dig in. Um, our encouragement is found in our status as children of God. We have been lovingly welcomed into God's royal family. You know, Leslie and I have been 
kind of wrapped up in the, the crown. We're kind of sad that uh, the season four is over, right? We're kind of, when can season five come around, you know? Uh, so it's on Netflix if you're interested. It's kind of interesting. I've enjoyed it. Um, one thing I've come to notice after these four seasons is, is, that, is this, that just because you are in the royal family doesn't mean you're happy. <laughs> Princess Margaret, well, she felt like she would be a far better queen than Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth's daughter Anne believes her family is actually worse than the tabloids print. And Prince Charles languishes in self-pity, wishing his status as future king didn't come with so many royal demands, including, well, faithfulness to his wife. In the penultimate scene in the last episode of the season four, spoiler alert, um, there is an interchange between Queen Elizabeth's husband, Philip, and Princess Diana. Both married into the royal family, and Diana says to Prince Philip that the two of them are both outsiders who will never fit in. But then Philip enlightens the young princess about how even those who were born in the royal family are never satisfied with their royal status. Here's what he says. <clears throat> you are right to call me an outsider. I was an outsider the day I met the 13-year-old princess who would one day become my wife. And after all these years, I still am. We all are. Everyone in this system is a lost, lonely, irrelevant outsider, apart from the one person, the only person, that matters. She is the oxygen we all breathe, the essence of all our duty. And he says to Diana, your problem, if I may say, is you seem to be confused about who that person is. All those in the royal family live as outsiders, except the queen, and even she isn't all that happy. So this show, The Crown, has allowed me to meditate upon the sheer brokenness of the royal family. And I cannot help but conclude that, that, this, that, that no earthly status can ever truly satisfy our fallen human hearts. See, if status in, British, in the British royal family is not enough, then we're all doomed. John is writing to the churches in Asia Minor, and he's calling them to be reminded of their status and identity that comes not from earth, but from heaven. And this changes everything for us. <clears throat> that is what John is getting at in the first half of our text. John is showing us in very poetic form that God has already won the great victory for us, and now we enjoy the spoils of being his sons and daughters. And not as outsiders trying to fit in, but as insiders in God's blessed royal family. Please take a moment to look at the structure in verses 12, 13, and 14. It is poetic verse. And in these verses, John addresses three groups of people, first little children, then fathers, and then young men. And then he repeats it again <clears throat> by addressing the same groups in that same order. Now, the question is, well, who is John referring to here? Who are the children, the fathers, and young men? Well, there is some disagreement among commentators. Uh, but I believe the proper way to view these groupings is to see them as various levels of spiritual maturity within the church. So let's look first at the children. Verse 12, 
I am writing to you little children, like infants, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then in verse 13, I write to you children because you know the Father. John is reminding us of the earliest conscious experience of a newborn Christian. And what is it that new Christians need constant reminding of? That their sins are forgiven. That they now know God. Understand this, the grammar is often important when we read our Bibles. Um, John uses the perfect tense here. uh, And throughout this whole poetic section, Perfect verbs mean a once and for all accomplishment, a completed action. John wants this church to know, especially the little children, that God has overcome the sin that kept you from knowing God. It's been done, this work of your heavenly Father. When Jesus was on the cross bearing the sins of the world, he said, it is finished. And so for all who trust in him, it is finished. But we need constant reminding of this, do we not? And unlike Princess Diana, who was chosen to join the royal family for how she would make the monarchy look good, God already looks good. He lacks no glory. He doesn't need us to make him look good. John wants the new Christians to appropriate their status as forgiven, cherished sons and daughters of God Almighty, their eternal Father. Now let's look at the fathers. The fathers are the spiritual adults in the church, male or female. They could be of old age, but they could be young as well. We're talking here of spiritual maturity. John addresses the fathers twice, but did you notice he says the same thing both times? Here's what he says. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from beginning. Now, all Christians have come to know God, right? But their knowledge of him, their trust of him, their love for him ripens with the years. To know him who is from the beginning is to know, listen, it's to know the God who does not change. Those who are mature experience deep communion with the Father. Their battles against the desires of this world have great success as they know and love the Father. Listen, one commentator put it this way. He says, he pointed out that those who are mature in Christ are already consciously living in eternity. Does that describe you? Are you already consciously living in eternity? The world and all its desires are passing away. Though this life is filled with many trials and tribulations, they have experienced God's faithfulness time and time again. Oh, to know him who is from the beginning. Lastly, let's look at these young men. Of course, John isn't just addressing spiritually young males, but women too. This is just simply how they wrote back then. Those who are spiritually young lack a spiritual depth of experience with God. Their spiritual life is often like a small boat on open rough seas, tossing around on the waves of life. Does your life ever feel this way? 
The desires of the flesh and the desires of, of the eyes and the pride of life can be powerful. But listen, what does John say? John writes that they are strong. He says they have overcome the evil one. Once again, the verb here is in the perfect tense. John is not saying, listen, John is not saying they will overcome the evil one or they can overcome the evil one, but they have overcome the evil one. My friends, so much of overcoming temptation is to know that in Christ, the victory over sin and over the evil one is already complete for you. In Christ, we are overcomers now. No longer can you only live according to the flesh, as if you can't choose what is holy and good. No, Christ has set you free. And John writes, you are now strong. Strong. Young and strong. But Christian, remember, you're not strong in your own strength. What does John write? He writes, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. The passage tells us that the word of God is the very vehicle that brings us strength. And it's true, the more God speaks to us through his word, the more strength we experience in our lives, and the more in tune we are with his love over the false promises of this world. So my friends, regardless of whether you're an infant Christian in the Lord or a mature Christian or somewhere in between, the important thing for all of us this morning is that we know the love of the Father for us. We have overcome evil in the evil one because the Father sent his Son to do just that. In a few weeks, we're going to read the words from 1 John 4.10 where we read, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation or atoning sacrifice for our sins. We love because God first loved us. He is the one who's moved towards us in mercy and grace. He has overcome sin and death, and he's the one who's made us to be overcomers. He is the one who loves with an everlasting covenantal love. And he cannot nor will not forsake us. We are no longer orphans on the outside. We are cherished children on the inside of God's family. Listen, do you understand this? Do you delight in this? This is the encouragement that God wants us to experience as his children. And now it's from this encouragement that he begins to exhort us. You notice, notice John doesn't write, you know, he, he doesn't say, do not love the world and then God will love you and make you his child. He says, you are God's child. Therefore, live as his child and not in love with this world. The exhortation is in verse 15. <clears throat> and, and John is saying this, in light of the first few verses, in light of how much God has loved you and given you status as sons and daughters and has won the victory over evil for you, he writes, do not love the world or things in this world. 
Now, it would be good for us to make a little sense of the word world, right? Because like, wait a minute, you know, I like my kids, you know, most of the time, you know, my wife, you know, jobs can be good. So the word world, John uses numerous times in his gospels, in his letters, and it can mean the physical world that we walk upon, this earth. It can also mean all the people of the world. And so for God so loved the world that he sent his son. But it can also mean the world in all of its darkness and, and sin and its rejection of God and his kingdom. And that's the sense of the word world that is in use here. So John writes, do not love the world or things in the world. And he elaborates saying, listen, if anyone loves the world, what? The love of the Father is not in him. Jesus said something very similar. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But what? Lay up your treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break and steal. And then what does he say? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hearts follow after what we treasure, not the other way around. And Jesus, Jesus then says, no one can serve two masters for he, he will hate the one and love the other. Or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So based on John's writings and Jesus' sayings, there are only two types of people on this planet, right? Those who love the world and the things in this world and their hearts are attached to it. And those who love God as their heavenly father. Question is, which one are you? Not that Christians don't struggle with loving the world and things in it. Trust me, I know this personally. If Christians didn't struggle in this area, then Jesus never would have said those words. And John would not be exhorting us in the way he is. The difference is that those who walk in darkness don't find anything wrong with their earthly desires. They're just natural. I enjoy them. Or if they do find something wrong with them, they make excuses for them. They don't repent. But the one who loves the Father will agree with John. And when we fall short, we do what? We rest again on the cross of Christ and rise in love to serve him to the best of our ability. And the longer you have been a disciple, the more success you experience in this area and the more Christ-like you become. Christian, until the day you die, this is the battle you will be in. Things of this world will tempt you to find your joy and happiness in them. You must flee them in the power of the Spirit. Now, if you need a little assistance discerning just how we people tend to love the world and things in it, well, John gives us uh, some help in verse 16. He lists out three essential marks of living without love or living with a love for this world. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. We're not going to take a long time to dissect each, but let's just get a sense for what he's saying. First, the desires of the flesh. This is actually referring to the desires that are within us, right? The Bible calls our flesh or our fallen nature. These are impulses that are generated not by the Spirit of God, 
See, until the love of God subdues our love for self, we naturally live for self. It's not saying that we cannot at times do nice things, unselfish things from time to time. We do that. But it means that, that we ultimately cannot help but sin. The desires of the flesh are powerful. They will always lead us to the rival love for the world and the things in it. You know, Christians, we often want to blame the devil for all of our misdeeds. But so much of our sin, if we're honest, flows from just the sinful flesh that we children of God battle against by the Spirit. If you're unaware of this, go read Galatians chapter 5. There Paul says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Next, John writes of the desires of the eyes. John is talking about temptations which assault us not from within, but from without, through our eyes. They include things perhaps like greed or materialism or envy. Eve viewed the fruit of the forbidden tree as, quote, a delight to the eyes. King David's eyes lustfully looked upon Bathsheba as she bathed on the roof. The desires of our eyes, can they not? They can be powerful. We can see things, and our minds start telling us, if only we had that, life would be different. What is it that your eyes are often drawn towards? What things in this world tend to captivate you? Lastly, John writes of pride in possessions. Other translations uh, translate it the pride of life. The pride of life is therefore it's, it's arrogance or, or vainglory relating to one's external circumstances, whether wealth or status or appearance. It's a desire to shine or to outshine others. It manifests itself as, as self-reliance and self-sufficiency. Either people pridefully trust in themselves or they derive their worth and happiness and life from God. Those are the three things. Now, what is it that John says about all that is in the world? Two things. First, at the end of verse 16, he says, all these things? It's not from the Father, just in case you're wondering. Remember how John began his letter. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There is no darkness in God, and that's a good thing. The second thing that John says about the world is found in verse 17. What does he say? The world is passing away with all its desires. John has told us earlier that the darkness is passing away and the true light that we believe in Christ that is, is already shining into this darkness. Christ and his kingdom has arrived. My friends, the present age is, is doomed. Therefore, the things of this world are, be, are to be rejected. Why? Because they can never really ultimately deliver on their promises. Only that which is from the Father is good and eternal and satisfying. If only we would believe this and rest in this. 
Do you want to know how to catch a monkey? Of course you do. If you don't want to know how to catch a monkey, just go and leave right now. All right, everybody wants to know how to catch a monkey. Well, I've heard this is one way that you can catch a monkey. Imagine you're living in some part of the world where there's monkeys all over the place, and you don't want them around. You want to catch them and release them somewhere else. Well, this is a technique you could use. Find a nice jar, clear jar, and attach it to like a table or something, and you put some shiny objects in there that monkeys desire. And a monkey will stick its hand in there, and then it'll grab the shiny, bright object it desires, and it tries to pull it out. And because its hand is now in a fist, it can't come out of the neck of the jar, and it's stuck there. It would be freed if it would just let go. But the desire for the shiny object is so strong that the monkey will just hold on and hold on and hold on. All it takes is to let go and look elsewhere, and they would be free to flee. My friends, I think that's what John is, is showing us here in this passage. Is that there's these desires that we have, even as Christians, the things of this world that are passing away. I don't know what it is for you, you know, stock market, your career, your, 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 your relationships, whatever it is. You, and, and, and you become a shiny object in our hands or in a jar and we just won't let go. But it's in the looking to Christ. It's in looking to God that we're able to let go of these things, to truly be freed from them. That's the illustration of what it is to be a conqueror. As God's love has come and overcome our hearts, we let go of the earthly things that are temporal, and we turn and trust in God. That is the picture of what John is showing us here this morning. That is John's encouragement and his exhortation for the churches in Asia Minor. His words are fitting even to this day, are they not? Do you see areas in your life where your heart desires things of this world in the place of God? Well, what are we to do? One, we're to repent. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a moment, we'll have a chance to examine ourselves before God and ask God to search us, to see if there's any earthly desires in us that need uprooting in our lives. So we must repent, but also we need to reorient ourselves. We must soak in the truth concerning our status as children of God and let that press into us. My friends, the more God's love is pressed into us, the more we live with love for him and not for things of this world. I think most of us by now know I like to ride a bicycle, although um, some would argue I'm not very good at it. but I do have these pedals that, that need greasing up every now and then. And you can't take them apart to grease them. But thankfully, there's a grease fitting on one side, and there's an exit hole on the other side. And I've got this special grease gun that fits right up to that grease fitting. And what I do is I squeeze fresh grease into the pedal. And what do you think comes out the other side? The dirty grease, the useless grease, the mucked up old grease. What John is showing us this morning is that the more God's love is pressed into us, the more our sinful desires are pressed out of us. See, the more we delight in God and in God's will and in God's way, the more we live with love for him and not this world. It just makes sense. This is the love that has overcome the world. This is the love that overcomes our lives. Grace Church, may we come more and more 
alive to the love of God for us, his children. And from this love, may we live confidently for Christ and his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, your word strengthens us. Your will is what we desire to do. Why? Because your love is in us, and we love you. Oh, it can be hard, but we're thankful that you do not give up on us. You have conquered our sin for us. We've been set free. Our hands are no longer in the jar, and we desire to passionately live for you. We ask that you would empower us by your spirit to do this. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, in a moment, we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's time for us to reflect upon what this meal signifies. It means that God came down in love. He overcame our sin, and he's brought us into his royal family as his cherished children. Oh, may that truth ring true in us as we gather and come forward. If you're here today, though, and you're not yet a child of God and you desire to be, turn and trust in Christ. If you're still in the darkness, um, we ask that you would remain where you're seated and, and trust in Christ. Um, receive him as your Savior and then receive this meal that signifies that you believe him and he is your Savior. How we conduct the Lord's Supper is we'll have... Um, some trays with bread and trays with grape juice and we'll come forward and receive a tray of bread and a tray of juice and we're going to do it nice and safely distanced as best we can and then uh, we return to our seats and we're going to share in this meal together. Father in heaven, we thank you for what this meal signifies. We thank you for your kindness and your mercy. We thank you that you have loved us with the redeeming love that shows that you cherish your children. Thank you. Amen.